Welcome to Talking with Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris, how are you? All right. What's going on, Rachel? Not too much. What you got for me today? So I've had the great fortune of being able to go visit my cousins recently. At the time of this recording, I've actually gone to see them twice now since the pandemic has started. You know, now that we got our vaccinations, we were able to get together. And they have two small kids, Rachel. Um, And then just this past weekend, my Aunt Sue and Uncle Steve had their 50th wedding anniversary and they rented this giant house. Um, Actually, they didn't rent it. They have a friend and they just said, hey, you can use it in Delaware. So I got to see my cousin again, right? Uh, We brought the whole family out to the beach for, for a weekend and we got to, you know, just hang out. And the reason I'm bringing this up on the podcast, and I'm telling you about this, Rachel, is that they have two small kids. One uh, is a girl who is five years old, and the other is a boy who will turn two in October. Um, so that means right now, let's see, October is a couple months away. He's one and let's say a half, you know what I mean? Uh, de- depending on when this particular banter, you know, what episode we put it on. So between one and a half and two, somewhere in that range, right? And what was so fascinating these both times that I got to hang with the with the kids is just how much language that little boy has, a typically developing two-year-old has. And if you're not around typically developing two-year-olds, it can easily start to skew your perception of how just how much language a typically developing two-year-old has. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. I think that especially if you don't have any other children, um, I think that's like a very common thing that like we hear, we get kids for, you know, speech therapy and they're a little bit older. We're like, how is this possible? But it's like, if you don't have anything to compare it to, then you really don't know. And it's just kind of like, oh, well, they're a baby. It's like, no, like one, one-year-olds, one-and-a-half-year-olds, like they talk a lot uh, oftentimes and have a lot of words and they're building new vocabulary every week. And, you know, that's typical language development. Yeah. So one refreshing for my own ear to hear that, you know, uh, a lot of the young children that I'm around uh, have language impairments and they're working towards that. And so I feel like my own perception of what typical language development gets skewed and I feel and I remember this back in the day when I was actually working as a speech language pathologist in this school having to go down to the to um, kindergarten was the closest I could get and say okay I just need to be around what typical development is so I can remember that that this is what we're shooting for you know what I mean that this is the the goal that we're trying to have because you start to kind of lose, I, at least I do, I don't know if other people do, but I started to lose track of what that typical language development really is, you know? Yeah, and it's so funny because I feel like, you know, working with kids with speech and language impairment, then you like meet, you know, your friend's kid or a niece or nephew, or you have your own kid and you're like, wow, like, I can't believe it. It's almost like you're in shock (laughs) just because like kids can learn language so quickly. And it's just like, you're, you know, used to kids a lot of time needing extra repetition, extra time. It's a slower process. And so I definitely have had that experience multiple times where I'm like, it's crazy how fast these kids can learn. You know, it's crazy how much, how many words, like I just, I just said that word and they're like using it now. You know, it's just like really interesting. I feel like that, that, um, that difference sometimes it's hard to, to take note of but like I think those moments 
just kind of remind you, oh, like this is what typical language development looks like. Now, there was something else that happened. A couple of other stories I wanted to tell you about, Rachel, because, you know, I... I haven't flexed these muscles in a long time. Do you know what I mean? I've done a lot of research. I do a lot of presentations. I've spent a lot of time working with adults and teaching them, but being around the kids, and that's something I, you know, love, cherish. I mean, I really enjoy it's why I wanted to get an education in the first place. So I have another cousin that came in this sort of family reunion, and he has two twin daughters that are um, six or seven years old, and I've only ever met them you know, when they were babies, you know, I haven't seen them in five, six years, right? And so there's these two twin girls, and then there's me. And I realized like, oh, well, I want to get to know them, I want to hang out, you know, and so how does a guy my age, and who I am, like approach these two girls, who are, you know, family, but without that, like, you can imagine that that shy intimidation factor of like, who's this stranger, you know what I mean? And so I pulled on my old speech therapy muscles, you know what I mean? And I was like, okay, how am I gonna, how am I gonna like try and have a some sort of meaningful interaction where I'm not just coming up going, hey, do you want to do blah, blah, blah? And they go, ooh, you're the guy I don't know and try and push you away. So here's what I did. You ready? So uh, I thought you might appreciate this. First of all, I just bided my time, sat back, watched, watched them play a little bit, watched, you know, everybody play. And we were on the beach. So I was like, let's make sure, you know, everyone's safe. And then I crawled out onto the sand and I just started making an octopus in the sand, like, you know, making you know, like a sandcastle, but I was making an octopus instead. And all of a sudden, the kids were about, what are you making? You know, and I was like, oh, I'm making an octopus and just kept kind of quiet. And, um, well, can we help you make an octopus? Sure. What does an octopus need? Arms. How many arms does an octopus have? Eight. How many have I made so far? One. And all of a sudden, we were in it, and we were just making an octopus together, and there was no pressure, there was no strife, there was no, like, why don't you haven't seen your your cousin Chris in forever? How come you don't go see? You know, it was just, like, kids playing on the beach together, you know? And I just felt like it was just really an awesome moment to see, like, one, it felt like, whew, okay, I haven't lost it. <laughs> like, I was able to get him, you know, to come play with me and, and chat because uh, I was nervous, you know, like I haven't had that experience with kids in a while, you know? And I feel like it's, a, like I said, it's a muscle that if you don't exercise it, it is something that starts to fatigue just like any other muscle. So it just felt good. I was like, I got to tell Rachel about this experience getting to play with kids. I love it. I love it did the old like tempt and wait tempt and pause trick right <laughs> yeah. tempt with this this octopus in the sand <laughs> yeah like just i'll just be here doing my thing and they'll come over to me because it's fun like no one else is playing in the sand but that guy's playing in the sand and i like playing in the sand um and i feel like that's a strategy we talk about all the time right like just you don't have to go over and make the student do anything. Just be cool and they'll come to you, you know? Totally. All right, there's one last thing, though. There's another part of the story that I want to tell you. So a couple months ago, maybe a year ago now, um, I mean, you know my wife, Melissa. Well, she's like the handy person in the house. You know, she loves to, to fix things. If something breaks, it's Melissa goes to it. She's the YouTuber and she's handy and, and I'm the cheerleader on the side here, right? Well, our faucet broke, and so we decided to upgrade our faucet, right? And so we upgraded our faucet to be one of those ones where you can touch on the side. And I don't know if you, if you remember what I'm, what I'm talking about. Like, yes, you know, you can turn it on, and it just stays on, and it's touch activated. So you touch the faucet, and the water comes. Yeah, we love it. We absolutely love it. Gone are the days where you have to lift a lever and put a lever down. <laughs> right? There's, yeah. 
I'm like, can you even believe we used to have to do that? <laughs> so much effort involved in putting that lever on and off. <laughs> having visited my cousins now and visiting, having this 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 weekend experience, can I just tell you how many times I touched the faucet and it didn't? They didn't have it, you know. Went over because my motor plan had changed. You know, I don't. This is how I turn on faucets now. I go over and I tap the faucet. Well, like I said, I don't use the lever anymore. So again, I had that thought. Look, I got to tell Rachel about this because and everyone on the podcast because. How quickly did I learn my new motor plan of this is how it works? And then how many times did I make the mistake of trying to activate that because I had learned this new motor plan, you know? So it became really ingrained pretty quickly that this is how I turn on water now. And I constantly go, oh, man. Oh, man. Then I go to Melissa. Did you do it too? She's like, I do it all the time. I totally am touching the faucet. Why do I do that? Because it's motor planning, right? And I just think it really speaks to having to keep the buttons in the same spot, you know, as much as possible. I'm not saying you can't ever change the motor plan, but just being very conscientious of that because relearning has to take place. And a lot of mistakes then happen for students when, when suddenly the word go was here and go is not there anymore. Now you got to relearn it. And that takes time. That takes effort. It's frustrating. God, why come the water's not going on? Oh, right, because, uh, Chris, this is not one of those faucets. I had to cognitively think through why it wasn't working because I'm still tapping the thing as I'm thinking, why isn't this working, you know? Um, it's because it's not one of those faucets. So that took cognitive energy, and I just could feel, I mean, I'm not frustrated by it, but I could see how frustrating it would be for a student that was using AAC if we were moving the buttons around and where the student was used to pressing something or used to finding it suddenly was no longer there, you know. Speaking to that point, Chris, I just recently had an experience where I joined a new team and that's what ABA was doing. They were like, oh, we just want to make sure that he is being intentional. So we move the buttons around to make sure that he's paying attention. And I was like, ee, ee, ee. <laughs> how do I fix this? <laughs> but it's just like, these things still happen. These things, this idea of motor planning is not as pervasive as perhaps we think, or perhaps it should be. Um, the way that I handled the situation was just like talking about motor planning, talking about how, you know, we're either using visual discrimination or we're using motor planning and visual discrimination takes more energy, right? If we have to look and find that symbol, like sure, kids can prove that they can do it, but it's not fast. It's not easy. It's not going to make communication happen more often. So it's like framing that for the team. And then of course it was a whole thing. Cause then it was like, well, I have to talk to my supervisor and I'm like, okay, I can talk to your supervisor. <laughs> like I can like explain these things. Um, but it's just really an important principle. You know, that's an extreme version. I feel like that's not happening all the time, but being cognizant of that when we're doing programming, when we're doing, you know, device selection in an assessment process, like those are things we really need to think about because it takes a lot, a lot of energy and hours and hours of learning those motor plans. So we want to make sure that we don't have to go back and reteach and relearn because then it's just wasted time. And it's already hard enough for our kids to learn language. Well, and trying to learn it in the first place, if they're constantly moving around, I mean, it's nearly impossible. You know, I mean, it'd be like trying to type on a keyboard. And every time you try to type on a keyboard, the cue is in a different place. It would be constantly frustrating. You wouldn't want to do it anymore. You know, I'd want to throw it out the window. Exactly. Well, I think we've learned a lot of lessons from your weekend family trip. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. What is our interview about today, Chris? 
So this is sort of an interesting situation, Rachel. So a couple episodes ago, if you scroll back in your podcast archives, you would see that we did an interview with Amy Fleischer. And Amy Fleischer has sort of taken on a, a new role, was in a, a new position. And um, during that conversation, she said, I really wanted to bring on somebody from my old position. And so uh, Amy Fleischer is who I interviewed today with also Melissa Peterson, who is a speech language pathologist that Amy used to work with in her old school district. And so this is a, in, in some cases, it's like Amy was with the her, her new and then brought someone that she worked with in the past to say, let's be on the podcast together. And so that's who the interview is today. It's with Amy Fleischer and Melissa Peterson. Here at Talking With Tech, we're excited to partner with Smiles for Speech. This organization provides children with special needs living in impoverished communities the intervention and resources needed to help children reach their full potential. Smiles for Speech aims to provide long-term sustainable solutions for children worldwide. Their mission is to distribute educational materials, provide training to teachers and families without access to appropriate intervention, and to create global awareness on the importance of therapeutic services to support children in need. With your help, Smiles for Speech will continue to broaden their reach in assisting children living in disadvantaged communities gain access to the therapy services and education they need to thrive. To support this organization, go to smilesforspeech.org to learn more about this organization and to offer your support. That's smilesforspeech.org. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here today with a returning veteran to the podcast, Amy Fleischer. How's it going, Amy? Going great. Thanks. And Amy, we have invited, um, you, you kind of um, introduced me to Melissa Peterson. And Melissa, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So Melissa and Amy, can you talk a little bit about yourselves? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I'll just go first. Um, I was serving as an assistive technology specialist in a school district where Melissa worked. I'm also an occupational therapist. I had the good fortune of collaborating with Melissa on some AAC initiatives. And so that's why I've invited her here today. And Amy, your background is not as speech language pathologist. Is that right? That's right. I'm an OT and I'm fairly new to the schools. Gotcha. Now, and Melissa, so you used to work together. You're not, you don't work together anymore? That's right. I am still working in the district where we were working together and Amy moved on. We miss you, Amy. You <laughs> but too. we did have several <laughs> years um, where we were working together. Um, I am an SLP. I work with a lot of students who are emerging language users and are just learning to use AAC. And I'm also now part of our district assistive tech team. Hey, congratulations. When you say it's now, like fun. it's a, like a recent thing, like uh, this year is my first year doing that. Yeah. Congratulations. You know, that's something near and dear to my heart. So that's fantastic. So we're here to t today to talk about some kind of initiatives that you had going on, or maybe you still have going on, but of course, Amy, you've moved on to a new position in a new place. So let's talk about this, this, what you, what was happening in your district in the, in terms of AAC. Is it okay if I speak more broadly and then we go into the AAC bit in a minute? Totally. So, 
um, when I entered the district, it, we were just, it was a great time for making some systems change. And I had the chance to work with a bunch of different people throughout the district to come up with um, a bit a plan for AT that's just a bit more coherent. Um, so that involved looking at our considerations process within each team. And so I shared some of the work I was doing with Melissa at the time, um, including like, a, I think it was a, a considerations form which focused on AAC considerations. And that's where I, I it described a multi-tiered system of supports. And so um, I think that sparked some ideas for you, Melissa, is that right? Do you want to describe what you wound up doing? Yeah, it really did spark some ideas. Um, the parts that, that really were inspiring to me that you shared was the framework of capacity building and kind of a you know level one, level two, level three kind of framework for supporting students. Because I had been seeing a lot of disconnect across our district um, as an SLP in terms of AAC implementation and what teachers even knew about and what was happening. And I had also, in a separate sphere of my life, I had seen some work that North Vancouver School District was doing. Um, in British Columbia, they had made some district-wide core boards that had some different levels and they were distributing those. And so I had seen that and then I connected it with what Amy was talking about and sharing with me. And I thought, oh my goodness, we should have some district-wide core boards for our district which I had been kind of developing some that I had been showing to teachers just in my program, but I wanted to get it across the district. Okay. So let's, let's connect some dots for people. So as, let's start back a little bit. Let me just rewind what you were saying there a little bit and say, Amy, when you kind of uh, approached this, you had said that um, you wanted to kind of build capacity. What did the process look like prior to that? You know, what sure. was the model that you changed? Sure. I think you could describe it as an expert model. We had one individual who would typically be expected to do a lengthy evaluation, provide that report, and maybe there was lack of clarity about whether or not they would attend IEP meetings. But I think there was an expectation that that person really held the AT piece. They would provide the tool and um, do the training. Although it was cryptic, the way that I found it documented, it was like there was a real effort to shift responsibility to teams. So responsibility was described as, as being within the classroom, but there was this um, just kind of cultural norm that the one person who could actually do that was stretched, you know, it was just that one person and, and they were stretched really thin. So I entered into that scenario and I had concerns about equity and, um, you know, AT is not just for those with good advocates. And so what I saw was we would rush to put out fires and I wanted a system that was just going to be supportive of more students and more people making positive changes and effective decision-making. I think what you're describing there is, at least in my experience, kind of the journey of many folks around the country and the world where they've moved from this expert model to a more consultation slash coaching model. Um, 
of considering the technology that you're going to put in place. Um, and in, certainly in my own experience, that's where our team that I worked with and uh, one of the books I wrote was all about sort of, if you read the, the original book, it's a little bit more expert model. And the next book is a lot more coaching model and building capacity. So let me ask you, Amy, before we get into the AAC, what were some specific steps you took to reframe that model to make it more about, you know, considering technology and building capacity? One thing that really feels important to me is that I created a flow chart that took into account how a team would thoughtfully consider AT needs and evaluate the student making progress and consider those universal supports, which were in the building or built into the one-to-one -one device that they had been provided. So it was a real brainchild for me to make that flowchart, but it felt transformative because it showed how um, we would, how a team could think through that question and basically fulfill their, what I understood to be the, the minimal legal obligation, which is to thoughtfully consider the AT needs every year, at least in that one part of the IP. And then, you know, furthermore, we want to provide the accommodation and keep track of how it's working, all that kind of stuff. But I was just really focused on that. The ability of teams to make effective decisions um, during considerations. And it, it helped to have many versions of um, one page guides that I could kind of pass around and try out and revise. And so I think it was through the, the network in the state and um, nationally too, um, the listserv, the quiet listserv has been key in sharing those kinds of resources. So, um, and you, you said something kind of um, really profound there about the the technology that you were helping them consider. A lot of it was universal supports, which uh, tying it back to what Melissa was saying, she, Melissa, you use those terms like tier one, tier two, and tier three. These are what we called tier one supports, right? Something that's available to everybody. Um, and we can put technology in place that is available to everybody. Is that accurate? Yeah, for sure. Um, when I was that concept of having tiers and having something that's just for everybody was a new concept to me at that time. And I really liked it. Um, it just made so much sense when Amy kind of showed me those things. And I, I decided, it's funny, I decided a lot of things myself because I just heard them and I'm like, this makes sense. Um, and then I turned them into a district initiative. Um, never actually got permission to do that. I just kind of did it, mm -hmm. but it worked. And like people could, see, I was bringing in other people bring, we have an AAC committee of SLPs um, in our district. And so I brought it to them and we were talking it through and did some work on making a core board that would be for our district. Um, and I had made sure to have SLPs who are from our preschool program all the way through our 18 to 21 program so that we could make sure that we had the right words on there, um, but also so that we could tell teachers, this is the one board to rule them all. <laughs> this board is it, because they our teachers try really, really hard, but I know that many of them have gotten burnt out on, here's an AAC initiative, now here's a different AAC initiative, now here's this training for this program, and here's this other training for this other program, and they try so hard, but when it's constant, when the ground is constantly changing underneath them, they can't do it. And they're not going to give me buy-in if they don't trust that this work will be lasting. 
So there's so many things about what I about what you just said there that I love so much. So you took AAC that traditionally lived as a tier three. You saw that and said, no, we're going to try and make it tier two or tier one. We're going to give one consistent tool that is precious to everybody. Um, and uh, and you, you said, I'm not going to wait for permission. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to be the champion that makes this happen. I'm going to grab some other of my buddies and we're going to do kind of make sure that I'm not off rogue doing it by myself. Like that I'm making decisions and then all the weights on my shoulder, I'm making a collaborative decision. And that's how we're going to develop what the, uh, the tool is going to be. So let's talk about that tool a little bit. What did it look like? How did you decide what um, were some of the factors and considerations you put into place when you were saying, this is the, this is the one ring, you know? So this is what it looks like. I'm holding it up on our Zoom call. It is an L-shaped baseboard that has 38 words on them. And then we have a flip section in the top of right-hand corner that has fringe words. Um, and they have, we have, I'll talk about the fringe in a sec. I'll start with the baseboard. So we got together, we looked at a couple different designs, whether we wanted our fringe across the top or in the corner. I kind of liked it across the top, honestly, but some other SLPs had been using this board and already got some buy-in. So we decided to go with the L shape. And we, most of the words, we based our board strongly on the work that Project Core has done. Um, we changed a couple words just based on the words that our staff were telling us they need to use all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's pretty much the project core words that we used. Um, so that is the board. And then for the fringe, we added the fringe later because we just started with the board and then we had a template so people could make their own fringe. And what I realized after a couple months of that is that I was making fringe for my classrooms. And so they were using it. No one else had time to make fringe pages. And the fringe was really critical for getting teacher buy-in and for those emerging AAC users. Because I know when we have a fluent AAC user, they use mostly core, but those first words are so often highly relevant fringe words. And teachers just didn't have time get on BoardMaker and figure out how it works and make the boards and they get the wrong words and they have to make it. Like it was just a thing that was mm -hmm. too complicated. So then we came back together and we had the same group of SLPs and we just said, what words do you need to just get going? And so we have a food page that is mostly core words around food, not food items. We have clothing, we have school places. We just have a bunch of topics like that basically like it's an iPad with all of the categories um, that you can just print them and stick them on and go. We call it our starter pack of fringe. <laughs> okay. So you've created this tool now. I'm kind of picturing, you know, being a teacher in your district, I have this, this, this caucus of speech therapists has have created this tool. There's um, there's, there's now fringe vocabulary in the left-hand corner on these flip rings. How do you roll it out? So we, we went even further. Okay. So we have this tool. I'm I one thing that I haven't said yet is I put a logo on it. <laughs> like I just happens to have access to our district logo folder, like shared from district admin how many ever years ago. And I was like, you know what? This is gonna be district wide. I'm gonna put a district logo on it. And you will not believe how many people were like, oh, there's a logo. We should definitely use this. <laughs> 
definitely use this. There's a logo on it. It well, makes yeah. also spent three weeks of snow days building websites and putting that logo all over the website. So it looks very yes. official. It's official. It's official. It's There's official. a stamp on it. Yeah. That's what made it a district initiative. It has a logo. So just, I love that. I mean, even if you just copy paste it off the internet, get your lo- district logo and stick it on. Yeah. Hot tip there. It increased buy-in by so much. I think that makes so much sense, right? I mean, there's a sense of authority that comes with that and a sense of recognition as opposed to just something I found on the internet or, you know, something that somebody, um, a phrase that I often quote, one of my colleagues had told me was, um, you can't be a prophet in your own land, right? So, oh, well, Melissa and and a couple speech therapists in our local area made this board. Why should I listen to it? Oh, but it's got a logo on it. So it's official, you know? So It's got a logo. (laughs) And then we put it on a website. So Amy had been working on an assistive tech website for staff resources to kind of have them all in one place. And so I built a website that was linked to that, that was for AAC resources for staff. And we put these up on the website so that anybody could download them, showed it to all the SLPs. And we're like, hey, you can get this resource. Um, and I really think that part of what Amy was working on was that shift of from the expert model to the te- capacity building team-based model. I wanted that to work and I knew it wouldn't work unless our teams had resources that they could just take and go. Mm -hmm. Like they can't make their own, at least not starting off. We can't ask them to do that. If we want them to take on extra responsibility, we have to give them more tools so that they can do that. And so this was part of that shift. I was like, they need, they need, need some tools. Mm -hmm. So we need some stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they need some stuff. They need something that they can hold in their hands. So we called it our universal core board. We put it on a website and that was kind of the first stage and people started using it and it was really exciting. We've kept going, but. Okay. I was going to say, it sounds like there's an and or a but coming up there. (laughs) Oh, there's more. There's more. I'm still, I'm still expanding our use. I've got my fingers everywhere. So after that, um, COVID happened. There was a global pandemic and everything shut down. So we were frantically sending home these boards so that students would have something to talk on at home, which also expanded their use. Um, And then we got them translated into our top, we have them in seven languages now, English and our top six languages that are spoken by families in our district. Um, We have a one page one that we send home to families. It doesn't have all the flip parts. But we got those translated so that they're even more accessible. And then this was like the thing that really changed everything. I I was on the assistive tech team at this point, which was another change that Amy had kind of facilitated. But I said, hey, what if we can get this in the print? We can have people order it from the print center. And so direct ordering wasn't really going to work. So we just do a bulk order now. And I have, I have just boxes in my office. We order them a hundred at a time and they're printed on tear-free paper so that teachers don't have to laminate. And they can just tell me there's a, we have a Google form where they can just order. They're like, Melissa, I need 10 core boards and five staff lanyards and five boards for my students at home and three Spanish. And I can just send it to them in district mail. So they don't have to print anything. Because color printers are another thing that's very scarce. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm now passing out hundreds of them. Like, it's so cool. So, Amy, I can see you're running. Yeah, I want to jump in because um, 
there's so much I want to say about all that, but Melissa mentioned the tools and Chris said the stuff. So this is what I spend some time thinking about as someone who does cultivate resources for the district. And, you know, my role tends to be kind of curating the resources and then implementing them a bit indirectly. So I'm always trying to figure out what do people need to do their jobs? And um, if I may really backtrack, I initially started thinking about these district-wide initiatives a few weeks ago when, Chris, we were in a webinar together and someone said, I'm seeing students graduate without communication systems. And I can't imagine why that is. And so um, we turned towards this idea of what universal supports are available and how empowered are people to utilize them you know, early on in the students' time with the district. Um, my mind, I think I got fixated upon apps and I forgot that <laughs> we in Edmonds, we had um, in our last district, we had really, you had really worked a lot on getting these paper-based core boards out. And so um, I think that I am just having some trouble figuring out what are the tools that teams need to get going. And uh, the, this isn't exactly where I meant to go with this, but I've been thinking about a model of root cause analysis called the five whys, where you just keep asking why, why and getting, it's an iterative process to understand why something is occurring. And so the, the kind of concerns that I'm hearing is our students are graduating without what they need, without having what they need. Our staff are under all of these constraints in their different roles. And so I would love to go through this five whys. And, and so I can look back on that story that Melissa just told and it led to like, where are the printers? Who has access to the software? Um, what are the cultural attitudes about this resource? You know, having the logo on it. So I guess um, I'm bringing this up because I tend to, to approach this topic um, as a resource question. <laughs> and what I really want is that speech therapist partner to help me think through like some of the more um, uh, meaningful <laughs> reasons why you would go with one system or another, or a teacher, you know, anyone who really does have the background in AAC. That's so I really appreciate you bring the two of you together. <laughs> You're making me think of so many things, thinking go about ahead. whys. Um, and, and the fact that we went with a low tech as our universal, like level one, if there's a problem, throw this at it solution. Because um, there's the whys of like color printers and staff knowledge and those things, which we were addressing. But one of the biggest barriers to students having access just to AAC in their classroom and having staff who can model AAC for them in, in my district, and I suspect in many others, is that teachers and paras have so many things and they become intimidated by the tech aspect of it, even if it's a very easy to use iPad app. Um, a story that goes with this, I told Amy this story, is we, I have a teacher who's just all gung-ho. She has a classroom that has a lot of non students who are non-speaking and are learning to use AAC. And she was like, I'm going to do this. I know communication is important. Melissa, could you help me? Every kid's going to have an iPad and my paras are going to be modeling and we're all going to do it. 
this was several years ago and she went all in like there was just a stack of 10 iPads that she was so committed to using and I was trying to help her do it and showing her how to add buttons and all this stuff two years later she handed that stack of iPads to Amy. She dumped them on my lap and said, <laughs> they were all like such massive device abandonment. It was just too hard because they were trying, they didn't know how to add buttons and find buttons. And it was just too complicated. And these are competent staff who are trying. Mm -hmm. And it was just too much. In that same classroom, when we have now our universal core boards, I could show staff how to model and they weren't scared of it. They weren't feeling like they were going to mess it up or, oh, where's the word? Because they, they like, oh, 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 I need to add this word. I can't do it till I add this one weird fringe word. Um, they were stuck on core and they didn't think they could mess it up. And they actually started modeling. Mm -hmm. And we had so much student growth in that classroom in just that one year, which has continued because we went with the low tech thing that they were comfortable using. What that sounds like to me is you took away an option from them and limited their options, which forced them to actually use the strategy of descriptive teaching as opposed to rely on the, I'm going to add a button. Um, so I can't find um, photosynthesis. Uh, can I add photosynthesis on here? Oh, it's so hard to find it. And how do I add it? And whatever the fringe word is, I just picked that off the hat. But I could find um, eat uh, eat it, you know what I mean? Or mm -hmm. um, it is, and then flip to a fringe page that says yellow, right? <laughs> or something like that, that is starts to describe this process of um, it gets more then flip to the green. That yeah, was one of the, I saw you had colors as one mm -hmm. of your friend flip pages, right? That you could start to describe it. Um, it would that sound accurate? Like it, it, it helped put the rails on what they were trying to do. It really did. It helped them. It forced them into descriptive talking. And I did also provide training for how to use core words and how to model. Um, basically, I switched my training because I had provided them with a lot of training on Proloquo, which is the app that they were trying to use with that big stack of iPads. Um, and I just stopped telling them how to change anything on Proloquo and only told them how to model. I have a one hour presentation that I can share over Zoom now, which is amazing that I can just get into a classroom and spend an hour and show all the pairs what to do. And they really feel comfortable doing it. And I'm just like, I'm not going to tell you how to change anything on Proloquo because I don't want you to change anything on Proloquo. Don't touch anything. Mm -hmm. Just use the words that are there and talk with it. And what happened in that classroom that had all that massive device abandonment, now I am getting more and more kids onto iPads because the staff see the students are using the low tech board and they need more words. And the staff already know how to model. And they're like, they're telling me, oh, this kid needs more words. They don't have enough words. Can we get them an iPad so that they have more words? And they're not trying to add photosynthesis anymore. They're just modeling and it's, it's just makes my heart so happy. Melissa, let's talk about the design of that, that board that you're talking about. Like you said, it's got a, cause we're, this is an audio podcast. So let's describe it. Like you said, it's an L shaped, um, board where, I mean, it is a rectangular board, right? I mean, it's an yeah. eight by 11, it's an eight, board. eight and a half by 11 sheet. But and then uh, the, yeah, go ahead. And then the L goes down the left side and across the bottom, and it has our 38 core words that we figured out were the ones that we wanted. And then across the top, you just basically three-hole punch it. And then on the two right 
punches, that's where the flip pages are. And now each that, flip page has about 25 words that you can fit on there. The L shape it, the, and the symbol set that you used matches Proloquo? Would that be? It does not match. Okay. We're using oh, the board maker symbols on our low tech board. And then in Proloquo, I believe they use symbol sticks. We haven't had problems with students switching. Mm -hmm. um, we, I did make a Proloquo vocabulary set that does match our board because I thought that maybe that would make it a little easier. And then we're not actually using that nearly as much as I thought we would because now that the staff are confident with just modeling and they know they don't have to add anything, they can just find things. Also, instead of teaching them how to add buttons, I teach them how to use the search feature on Proloquo, which has been a game changer. Absolutely. I, it, that is a huge takeaway from our conversation here, I think, for people listening, is we'd want people to uh, to focus on your education on the implementation, not what adding words, so not the operational part of the device, uh, or at least that part of the operational part of the device. I mean, sure, you want to know how to charge it, um, but not to add words. And then, like you said, focus more on the searching, and that really is in conjunction with or maybe as a, as a next step, um, low tech, having some sort of low tech so that you are kind of forced to do that descriptive teaching. Yeah. I think low tech is underrated. Some mm -hmm. of our students prefer low tech, even though they could use an iPad and we would provide them if that's what they preferred. But some of our students like the low tech. Some of our families have been able to use that much more easily for the same reasons that our teachers have. Um, also, it's always good to have a backup. We had an, an incident, I'm putting air quotes around that, earlier this year where <laughs> unfortunately our iPad management system was having some bugs and um, the communication apps got wiped off of every district iPad overnight. And everyone was like, oh my goodness, oh, what do we do? My kid can't talk anymore. And I'm like, do you have that low tech board that I sent you in September? Pull it out. There you go. We'll get this fixed. But it might take a couple hours or days. And in the meantime, here you go. Here's the low tech option. And their kids were fine. And so, Melissa, I'm glad you told the story about abandonment because I felt like we had these resources, but it wasn't about having, it wasn't scarcity of resources. It was about implementation, as Chris mentioned. So let's talk about what, um, what happens next. Where do you see this, this going next? What is your next like, okay, now, so here's where we are. What do we do with this? So I'm this year now that I'm actually on the assistive tech team, which was another change that Amy started and then has rolled over because <laughs> she used to be the only single solitary assistive tech person. Um, and she really wanted to have a team. Amy, do you want to talk a little Probably more about that team? Yeah, I read your book, Chris, The Fun and Practical Guide to AT in the Public Schools. And I'm pretty sure that was the one in which you described how a team could function. And so um, it seemed to me that it definitely took multiple perspectives and collaboration to, to provide um, meaning, you know, good tools and, and follow up on implementation and all the training. So that was a couple of years in the making. Um, it really worked out beautifully when I left. We found a super capable and, and you know, eager person to take my place. And um, she saw the value in a team. And so we convinced the administration. So 
I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. So now <laughs> we have a three-person team. There is one OT, there's myself and one other SLP. Um, and we, this year is our first year of the three of us working together. So it's been just, we're figuring out our different roles and our different strengths and how to best get us into classrooms. I have to say Zoom has been a blessing in disguise for this. We can just meet with any IEP team now just on the fly or, oh, let's just, you know, call a half an hour meeting and talk about this tool or check in on this tool and how's it working. We've been having so much better consultation time because of Zoom and because there's three of us now so we can all just meet in that way. Isn't that funny? Like, so for years, we've had this technology, you know, Google Hangouts was a thing, Skype for years. And um, even amongst ourselves as a team, we would hesitate to use it. We always felt like we needed to be in person, in person. And if even if we did, like I tried to, I know myself, I'd try and like get into classrooms and do that, but the teachers didn't really know how to use it or they knew how to do it for like a one-off thing that they did some sort of Skype call, but they had someone supporting them. They never really did. And that all of our tech skills have rised so high because of this um, pandemic. Everyone's comfortable with this now. Would we ever go back? We would just like, there might be times where you'd ask the question now, do I need to do this in person or do I need to, or is there another way we could do this? Could we do this um, in a distance learning because it can save travel time. We can just jump on, we can jump right off. We can get onto something else. Um, there's, like you said, there's some benefits to it. Yeah. And, and we've been just in time support. Sorry, Melissa. Yeah. So it also allowed us to provide just in time supports, which could be differentiated based on the need. It could be like someone just needed to understand how to pair a Bluetooth device, or it might, you know, be a more observation type consult. Um, there was another presentation at ATIA in 2019. I think Denise DeCoste 20 or her swan song before she retired, where she talked about teams and differentiated supports and using video conferencing. So I came back in, early 2019, asking people if they would Zoom with me and they would just reject the invite. But that, and to. I think, you know, what else I think is a big takeaway now that people are more familiar with this is the asynchronous video modeling. So you, someone might be much more used to making a video that they would put in their classroom. Do you know what I mean? For a Google classroom, whatever. But I could also make a video of whatever else, you know? So I could send that to you, to Melissa, and then you could look at it and go, okay, so I saw how you were modeling there. What do you think would happen if, you know, and you can give feedback in this asynchronous back and forth where it's not like you have to be in the room with them to do that. Yeah. And we can also, we have had so much more ability to invite parents and to include parents and families and, and caregivers as well, just to have a Zoom with all of us without asking them to leave their job in the middle of the day or to travel all the way to a school district building. We can see the students in their home environment and set up supports for those areas as well as at school, which just makes it so much more powerful. Everyone I talk to says the same thing, Melissa, that that, I mean, you're, you're, you're another person saying that that is, we now have a windows into people's homes and they have a window into ours and there's this deeper connection and they are, they are walking out the back end, um, 
of these experiences with their skills rising, you know, the, the community skills rising, the family skills rising. And really that is a big, um, it's in, I talk about this barrier all the time, the transition and turnover rate, you know, um, the, the number, a person might have six to eight different speech therapists in their life, you know, just in their school age years, uh, because of the, or, and teachers, but the parents will probably be there for a lot for the long haul. So let's get their skills up and, and focus the instruction there and their, their abilities there. Yeah. And they can also tell us what they need more directly, which makes our support to them so much more relevant. Awesome. Well, okay. So is there any sort of final thoughts? What, what would you advice would you give to people that want to kind of follow in your footsteps? I guess in terms of the AAC part, I would say don't discount low tech because it can be super powerful and focus on AAC modeling and nothing else at first. If you can get those two things going, then you can see where it's best to expand and where you have openings. Awesome. And Amy, final thoughts? Melissa said it best. I support that. That concept. <laughs> and I guess Mimi, Amy, would we say build capacity? If you're out there alone, don't feel like Absolutely. you need to be alone. You you take steps to make that change. Yeah, it's all about taking the time to understand um, someone's situation and the, the struggle, the obstacles that they face, so that you can provide them the tools and the trainings that they need to succeed. That's why I love the work. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your experiences, sharing what's working for you, um, sharing what has happened and best of luck in the future. Uh, stay in touch. We'll have to follow up with you and see how things as the pandemic progresses and where we, as things continue, um, I hope we take some of these lessons that we've learned. I'm sure you will. And we'll see where we are in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for facilitating <laughs> Thanks so this conversation. You bet. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks.